Good morning. Our scripture reader we're going to be doing is 1 John 4, 7 through 18. And if you've grown up in the church like me, I think you can appreciate the fact that it seems a little weird to be reading these first two verses. I feel like I should be singing them, um, but I will spare you guys that performance. So. <clears throat> I don't want to steal Aaron and Slender. <laughs> 1 John 4, 7 through 18. Uh, be reading from the ESV. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, so that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his Spirit. And we have seen and testified, and test, we've seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. For this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You would join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you for the truth of your word. You are love, and you have called us to show your love to the world. Please help us to submit our will and allow you to abide in us so that we can love each other, not as the world defines love, but as you define love. Just pray for Pastor Aaron, and uh, just give him your words to speak, and open our hearts and minds to hear your words, your message through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Um, I clapped because I just wanted to make sure I got to sing it first, so for everybody, not really. But, um, uh, oh, Mandy, I just want to say it was a joy seeing Mateo running up and down the aisle there. I love that. <laughs> Very entertaining. <laughs> Enjoying all the worship time. I love that. That's awesome. How are we doing, church family? Wow. Pretty convincing. <laughs> How are we doing, IBC family? Even if that was fake, I'll take it. You know, if you've been with us uh, for some time now, you know that we have been going through a series called The Attributes of God, and in and of itself, we brought definition to what an attribute is, but ultimately, we've gone through various aspects or characteristics 
about who God really is as he defines himself or reveals himself through the scriptures. And there's been a, a, a number of notable uh, theologians that have, come, that have come before us that have also done a, a lot of work on this particular study, extracting much from the scriptures and giving us uh, helpful understanding or even just vision as to who our God really is. A.W. Tozer, being one of those notable figures, uh, asked this, or really kind of said this statement that has been kind of a, a precursor to all that we have been preaching on up to this point. Uh, A.W. Tozer says this, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. We could personalize this. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, the reason why this statement rings true uh, is because our understanding or your understanding of God is, is ultimately determines how you relate to God. Uh, it influences how you prioritize your relationship with God. It influences how you or impacts how you just go about living your life in general. In other words, what you think about God radically affects every aspect of your life. Now, we can always ask the question, what do you think about God? And that has been kind of an implicit question posed from the very beginning. What do I really think about God? And are my thoughts about God biblically aligned or biblically accurate? Or are they just kind of more self-serving? Have I created a God in my own image? Or am I humbling myself and worshiping the God as revealed through the Scriptures? A question I want to pose for us this morning to kind of introduce our particular attribute about God this morning is this. What do you think God thinks about you? Again, all through this series, we have been asking, what do you think about God? And, and really help, allowing ourselves to be challenged in that way. But the question is, what do you think God thinks about you right now, this morning? Let me ask you a, a series of follow-up questions to that question. For example, do you think that God is at all concerned for you? Do you believe that God even wants to be with you, to be in a relationship with you? Do you think that God even likes you? Do you think that God has strong affections for you? You see, how you answer this or these questions ultimately determines whether or not you will run boldly before the throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need, as Hebrews 4 invites us to do, or, or potentially running away or keeping your distance from him. Because much like Adam and Eve did when they sinned in the garden, they ultimately hid from God out of shame from their own rebellion. You know, there's two, there's probably more than that, but there are two kind of common or an extreme perspectives of God out there. Uh, either people think that God is just full of love, 
Or people have this idea about God that he is full of wrath and full of judgment. People that identify kind of with that that God is full of love can take that to mean that God just loves them the way they are. You know what? I am who I am, and God just loves me just the way I am. And, and, that, and they believe that God wants to have them to have a good life and to just bless their life as they deem fit. Usually, the people that think that God is full of love don't like to talk about God's wrath or judgment or His holiness or to think of God in this way. People, in fact, in this camp usually avoid any conversation or dismiss those passages of Scripture that describe God's punishment of sin. Now, on the opposite extreme, we have people that believe that God is full of judgment and and full of wrath, and they can tend to view God as maybe much less approachable, right? That God cares more about punishment and the eradication of sin than he does about his steadfast love and mercy and grace and kindness and patience. You see, people in the camp that, God, that believe that God is more full of judgment and wrath tend to think or find it difficult to accept the idea that God deeply loves them and is eager to save them. Well, regardless of your perspective this morning, there are three facts that we need to understand about the subject of God's love. Here's fact or truth number one. The first truth is this. Love is a universal need. You you are part of a universal need to be loved. It's not a want. It's not convenient if you have it. You have a universal need for love. Let me ask you, have you ever met anybody who is not looking for love or who feels too loved? Have you ever met anybody who says, no, please stop. No more love. Too much. No, I highly doubt it. We all have a universal need for love and a love that is continuous or constant that does not give up. We have a constant need for love because it is intrinsic to who we are as human beings. It's intrinsic to human flourishing, for without it, we eventually die. I remember when I was uh, back in Uganda in 2010, both Nick and I were uh, over there with uh, Asa, who's there right now in Uganda, and uh, when we were doing an exploratory trip together, one of the orphanages that we went to uh, that is, has a lot of um, outside assistance, uh, we walked around and we're asking lots of questions, and I, re- I recall uh, some of the people overseeing the orphanage saying that many times, or it's not unusual at all for the young babies to die. In the orphanage. And at first I was like, well, you know, we're asking questions like, well, why is that? You know, or do you not have enough food, enough water? Do you not have enough medicine? And it's like, no, no, we have all those things. We have all the medicine they can never need, all the food, water, everything they could ever need. All their basic needs are provided for consistently, but the babies often will can still die. You know why? Because they're not held. Because they're not held. And you may think, well, what's the big deal about being held? Well, the first act of love, an experience of love for a baby, 
is being held. And without being held, they are love sick and they die from a lack of love. In other words, their longevity has less to do with the basic needs, even though those things are important, but is the fact that they have not been able to experience love and there's not enough orphanage uh, workers to kind of go around and give everything that all the number of babies require or need. We have a universal need to be loved. But thankfully, there's a universal solution. There's a universal solution to our universal need for love, and that is this, that God loves the world. Pastor Tom just declared that from the very, at the very beginning of the service. God loves his world. He loves his creation. He loves you. He loves the human race. He loves all that he created. He loves people everywhere, and, and he desires to meet their deepest needs and longings, really in the heart of every single person. So, so far up to this point, this is really good news, right? We have a universal need for love, and we have an incredibly amazing God who is not only able to, but willing to love us universally and without limit, right? Should we just pack up and go home? Here's a problem. There's a problem, and here's what the problem is. The problem is that there is a tragic disconnect and us receiving his love. You see, most people remain starved for the love that they need in life. Even though it is universally available, even though God has no limits on how much he can love us with his un- unfailing love, we, are, we continue to remain starved for love. Why? For a number of reasons. For one, Some people just don't know that God loves them. You know, we sing this basic song, right? This children's song. By the way, we're all children of God, so it should not just be devoted just to children. We would do ourselves a great service or a favor if we were to just let that song kind of ring through our minds on a daily basis. Jesus loves me. This I know. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. God's revelation to me. God has told me so. Jesus loves me. You see, most people in the world do not know that God or whatever deity they refer to actually cares about them. I recall back when I was uh, between seminary and, and after my undergrad and stuff, I went to, uh, over to Western China and to Tibet, and uh, there was um, a number of people. Oh, are those pictures not there? Oh, there we go. Um, there's a few different, uh, just, you just kind of click through them and end on the last one there, Megan. But um, going there was a very eye-opening experience because on one hand, you know that uh, there's different cultures, different backgrounds, and you're going there. But this particular picture, I want to kind of, you can pause on that one, Megan. Um, you go there and uh, other parts of the world, you know, we in the West, we, can, we have this thing called atheism. We actually think that there is no God. And it takes a lot of faith to have an atheistic faith, if you know what I'm saying. But when you go to other, most places in the world, almost everyone believes in some sort of supernatural being or beings. They believe in some kind of deified being. And uh, you go to Western China and Tibet, and what's out there is Tibetan Buddhism. Buddhism is a, a common or a very popular religion or a belief system, but... 
and I'm not going to go into exhaustive detail here, but here's one thing I do know, having observed and walked and talked with a number of these people, their gods do not love them. In fact, just the opposite. If they screw it up, their gods are eager to crush them. So you better appease the gods or else, because anything bad happens in your life, it's because you have not pleased the gods enough. And so their whole life is wrapped around appeasing and not ticking off their deities. You see what these guys are doing? They're spinning these things called prayer wheels. And those prayer wheels are filled with prayers. That building that they're around is actually where we are at. That's where all the prayers, Tibetan prayers, are printed in a traditional way. And they have all these wheels. And their whole daily existence, especially if you have any hope of reincarnation to a higher level, their only hope for reincarnation is to appease the gods enough. It's all about outdoing or doing enough performing enough so that you can just get in, so you can reincarnate to something better. It is a weight, and you see people that are, that are literally spending months going prostrate on their face all the way to their holy city and to appease the gods, because guess what? The gods do not love them, and so they're constantly appeasing their gods. This alone should motivate us in our evangelistic fervor. But another reason why I believe that people are starved for this divine love that is offered to us is because some people know of God's love, but they have not yet received it. Perhaps some of you in the, in the sanctuary this morning Perhaps some of you are in here who you've known of it. Perhaps you've been around this, you know, the church for you know, a period of time. Perhaps you've read the Bible before or you're familiar with it. You know that God is a God of love, but you yourself have not yet received it. Or perhaps some of you have received it, but struggle to remain in it. And that's another reason why we remain starved for God's love. There might have been a period of time in which, you, in which you really were desperate for God's love in your life. Usually people in this category know that they know God's love intellectually, but fail to regularly experience God's love for them personally. Many times people have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? As Psalm 34 invites us to, Right? But to remain in that place, to remain in his love, to continually be satisfied by God's love is a struggle. You know how often in our lives, right, when, when, when the going gets tough, when life is hard, when we're experiencing great struggle in our life, how often or how actually easier it is to run after God going, God, I need some help here. I've exhausted all my options I, I don't know what else to do or where else to go, what else to turn to, and so we run to God because we realize we are weak and we need his intervention in our lives. And yet how oftentimes the, the, the way the cycle works is when things tend to settle down, right? When, when life is no longer, the, the pressure's off, and now all of a sudden thing, things in our lives seem to normalize a little bit, and then guess what? Oh, good, whew. It's off. Thanks, God. 
I'll see you at a later date. All of a sudden, we're less desperate. We're, we're less anxious or ambitious about running to God and receiving the love that he has for us. Let me, let me just ask you this question for the sake of your own reflection. Do, do, do any of these reasons, even to some degree, resonate to, uh, about you? Are you in here this morning going, yeah, I, I know of God's love, or I've actually even received it and, and experienced it. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't feel it. I don't feel like it's bringing a skip to my step. Brendan Manning, who actually wrote a book called Abba's Child, he um, actually quotes Henry Nouwen, um, one of those kind of mystic writers and stuff who I've actually appreciated over the years. He says this in his book, Over the years I have come to realize, this is Henry Nouwen being quoted, Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Bless you. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are a part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe that the, vo- the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success and popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that God calls us the Beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Wow. Do you believe that? You probably have to nod your head because I'm saying it. But do you believe believe that? Do you realize that, brothers and sisters? Do Do you realize that God sees you in this way? That God sees you as his beloved, unconditionally loved, Do you view God in that way? Remember the question I posed in the beginning. How do you think God views you or relates or wants to relate to you? You see, so many aspects of human flourishing like peace and joy and contentment are experienced when we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. Again, the question is, how does God see you? Well, as Henry Nouwen was able to identify, God sees you and he relates to you as his beloved, unconditionally loved ones. To to kind of elaborate on what that means, this means that God sees you as precious. He sees you as valuable. He loves you without condition. He sees you as the object of his affection and concern. In fact, God finds great pleasure and joy when he thinks about you. Do you think that? God is for you. 
God views you and wants to relate to you as a friend. God loves you as much as he loves his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Do those statements at all come a little shocking to you? They are, and yet they are all from Scripture. This is what Scripture teaches. This is how God reveals to us. And now some of us in here might be saying, I, I don't know, Aaron, this, this, these this is not the impression of God that I've had up to this point. Or, or this isn't the God I was taught to obey as a young kid. Or, or this isn't the, the description of God that I, I kind of grew up believing. I mean, I would love that if God were like this, but I have a hard time thinking of him, let alone relating to him like this. That God is for me? That he actually finds great pleasure when he thinks about me? Isn't that kind of actually the wrong kind of relationship with God? Are we supposed to just bow down and worship God? Yes. But what spawns, what, what what's, uh, motivates that desire to bow down and worship is realizing how He loves you already. Whatever impression that you may have at, of God currently, right now, this morning, Listen to the words of King David in Psalm chapter 8. Just listen to these words, Psalm 8. You actually know these verses. David says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which have, which have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? You know, that word for mindful actually means uh, to, uh, to be a fixture in the mind of God. When David poses that question, he's saying, why, God, are you fixated on me? What that means is that whatever, we, whatever circumstances we are currently going through right now, what God has chosen to feel that with us. God has chosen to emotionally identify with us. In other words, God isn't responding to distress. He's not, he, 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 God really is, he's responding to our struggles and our pain and our, and our hurt saying, he's not saying, come on, knock it off. You shouldn't be thinking this way. Don't you know better? Don't you know who I am? I can take care of all these things. No, that's not what God is saying. When David recalls that God is fixated or in his thinking about us, he's saying that when we hurt he hurts. When we are grieving, he grieves. When you suffer, he suffers. When you are ecstatic and full of joy, he too is celebrating with you. Again, I ask, does this come as a surprise to you? Does this challenge your faith? Is this really who God is? Again, sometimes as kind of conservative evangelical Christians, sometimes we can swing to or kind of avoid a polarized opposite because in our culture today, people are like, it's just all about love. And, but what they mean by that is not actually in the biblical sense. On one hand, you could say, yes, it is all about love, but not in the way you are implying or intending this to communicate. And so on one hand, our culture may be decrying the need for more love, and that's true because they are also starving 
for a love that only God can give consistently. And at the same time, Scripture makes it very clear that God finds great pleasure when he thinks about his creation. If you're wondering, man, this is really hard to, is this really true? Let me just say, yes, it is. I love what the gospel writer in his other letters, John, said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see how great, see how very much our Father loves us. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. I think at this point, we also need to understand, well, when we talk about love, what do we mean by that? Because as I already talked about, in, the, in our culture today, everybody can throw out words like love, but that doesn't necessarily mean we mean the same thing, right? We can all say, yeah, we need more love, but what you mean and what I mean are maybe two different things. And so, what do we mean that God is love? What kind of love does God provide? What kind of love does He love us with? I think one of the clearest passages of Scripture, which you've probably heard many times before, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? What is godly love? What is a divine love? Well, for one, a divine love is patient and kind. It's a love that does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a love that never ends. I think one of the greater definitions uh, that I come back to often, especially when I read this, the Jesus Storybook Bible to my kids, it's a definition of God's love. And I've, I mentioned this a long time before, but it's an opportune time to say it again. Uh, it, by the way, if parents or grandparents, if you're looking for a great children's Bible, there's a lot of children's Bibles out there. I'm not saying some are bad or some are good or whatever. I'm just saying this one rises to the surface very quickly, very easily, because it has God's redemptive plan all throughout the Scriptures, which is how we need to understand and interpret the scriptures. And in this Jesus Storybook Bible, the definition of God's love is this. God's love is his wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Man, I love that definition. Unbreaking, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever. It just It's like, whoa, who loves like that? God does. Chip Ingram actually offers a great definition uh, that we'll unpack just very briefly here, but he says this, God's love is his holy disposition toward all that he has created that compels him to express unconditional affection and selective correction to provide the highest and best quality of existence both now and forever for the object's of his love. We've got to break that down because that's a kind of a, an earful, right? 
What, what is Chip Ingram getting at here? First of all, he's saying that God's love is holy. What do we understand to be holy? Holy means to be set apart. It means to be unique or different. It's not like a human love, but it's a different category altogether. God's love is holy. It is unique. It is unlike what the world may call love. But it's also a holy disposition. It's not just holy, but it's a holy disposition, meaning that God's love or God is compelled to love you. Now, that might come as a startling statement, right? God is compelled to love me? No, he's compelled to love you, not because of something in you, but because of something in him. You see, God is compelled to love because as 1 John 4 was read for us this morning, God is love. Therefore, he is compelled to love because it is who he is. He is compelled to to express unconditional affection, meaning that his thoughts and his affections toward you are not determined by your performance or your your likability. Um, It has nothing to do with that. Has nothing that you, know, you can sometimes contrast this with, um, you know, how we, we often like one another, right, or avoid one another, depending on uh, whether we have, a, you know, personalities that we like or don't like or shared interest or not or whatever it is. But God's love is not affected by those things at all. He is compelled to express unconditional affection and compelled towards selective correction. In other words, God loves you so much that at any time, your life, your thoughts, your relationships, your finances, your priorities, or any time those things are moving toward an unhealthy direction, that God will change you and others because he loves you. If if these kind of things might potentially damage you or others around you, he loves you enough to intervene. What what does Hebrews tell us? That God disciplines those whom he loves as a perfect parent would. And why would he do this? To provide us the highest and best quality of existence. I mean, this is the abundant life that Jesus promised for us in John 10.10, right? I have come to give you life and to experience it to the full or to experience it abundantly. I think one of the better ways that we can understand this attribute of love or divine love, as we've talked about in the past, so if you've been with it a while, then this will be a reminder of this, but this, the, the kind of divine love we are speaking of is called agape. Agape. There are different words in the Greek, especially for, for this word love, but the kind of love we are speaking to is what's called agape love. It's an unconditional love. And probably the best and most profound verses that we, again, Pastor Tom even shared it for us in the very beginning. It's in John 3.16, right? I, I, I grabbed this from the New Living Translation, so it'll sound a little different than probably the way you memorized it. But here's John 3.16. For this is how God agaped the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but instead have eternal life. In other words, God's love or his agape love is a giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. 
It is a limitless love. I don't know who said it first, but it came across in my reading a while back, so I can't give proper credit where credit is due, but someone said it this way. Agape love is giving another person what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. Agape love is giving another person what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. Brothers and sisters, this is how God loved you. This is how God loved you. If we were to put this in a God's agape in a common day language, let me just read a couple statements to you just to give us a fuller understanding of what we're talking about here. God's agape means his thoughts and his intentions and his desires and his plans for you are always for your good and never for your harm. You know this verse very well. Sometimes it gets ripped out of context. But in its proper context, the prophet Jeremiah, God through the prophet Jeremiah in verse t- chapter 29 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Again, the prophet Jeremiah in the context was speaking and basically he was pronouncing condemnation or judgment on the people of Israel because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. And of course, God being a holy God, he's like, I must punish the sin or the rebellion, but God at the same time promising, I'm not against you. Yes, I must punish the rebellion, but all this, all my discipline will come full circle so that you will be my people and I will be your God. You have everything to gain even in this corrective discipline. God's agape means that he is kind and approachable and eager to be your friend. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 15. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. God's agape means he emotionally identifies with your pain. He emotionally identifies with your joy and with your hope and with your dreams and has chosen to allow your happiness to affect his own. Do you ever realize when in John chapter 11, when Jesus is on his way to go help Lazarus, one of his best friends, of course, he doesn't get there quick enough. Lazarus dies. His sisters are distraught. Jesus, if only you would have been here, right? This would have all been very different. And Jesus already knows what he's about to do. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So it's no issue for him. And at the same time, what does the scripture tell us that Jesus does? Even though he knows what he's about to do, Jesus weeps. He weeps. Why? Why take that? Just heal him already. Raise him from the dead already. He weeps. Because he identifies emotionally in our weakness, in our struggle, and our pain. You see, most of the times, people's perspective of God is that God is distant. He is not approachable. That God may know, but he doesn't care. And brothers and sisters, let me say to you, based on the authority of Scripture, that God cares more than you ever know. 
And he identifies with your struggle and your pain more than you can imagine. And that he even allows himself to be affected by whatever it is you are going through currently right now. God's agape means he takes pleasure in who you are, are, totally apart from your performance or accomplishments. God's agape means he is actively in creating and orchestrating people, circumstances, and events to express his affection for you and selective correction for your highest good. As I'm thinking about all these various statements and all these truths about how God, who God is and how he views or regards me, I'll be honest with you, even as a pastor who spends a lot of time in the word, thinking and dwelling and, and, and reflecting on these things, sometimes it, is, it sounds too good to be true. You're like, really? God, you really think this about me? And the answer is yes. These are not just wishful thinking statements. These aren't just statements to go, oh, wouldn't that be so great if God was this way? These are reminders of his revelation to us that he not only has the capability of being this way, he is this way. This is who he is. If we would just receive it. How then should you and I respond to these truths? Real quickly here. First, we must believe it and receive it by faith. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not only we must believe it and receive it by faith in our hearts, but we must believe it by faith in our minds. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and you, most of you know this very well, but Romans chapter 8, Paul says this at the very end. He says, For I am sure, meaning I'm fully convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, many of us know what the Bible says. The question is, do you believe it? Many of us know what God says. The question is, does that belief, that, that promise, that revelation go from our minds to our hearts and are we convinced without any doubt? The enemy loves to come in and plant seeds of doubt. Does God, did God really say? Does God really think this about you? Maybe he doesn't. Oh, no. No, Paul says, I am certain that this is my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But we must also share it through our choices and our decisions. We already went through 1 John as a series, so I won't go into it, but at least 1 John 3.18 says this, Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. In other words, without this is a whole other sermon in and of itself, but you cannot love one another until you have first received the love that God freely gives you. In other words, you cannot give what you don't first possess. You can only give 
what you have already received by God the Father. We love, Scripture says, because God first loved us. But finally, let me just say this. We must never depart from the centrality of Jesus Christ. How do you and I remain in the love of the Father? We do so by not departing from the centrality of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, follow me. Not when it's convenient, not when you feel like it. Follow me. Abide in me. Remain in me. And in so doing, you remain in the love of the Father. Thank you. 